My name is Laura Dawn, and you're listening to episode number five of the Psychedelic Leadership Podcast, featuring my conversation with psychedelic neuroscientist Manesh Gurn. That's one of the main potentials of psychedelics is they shake up our snow globe, if some people would say it, and give us the opportunity to reform our beliefs and fundamental models of reality and who we are in a, in a more healthy way. Psychedelics interrupt our typical narratives and let us peer beyond them. This could relate to an alteration of memory-related processing within the default mode network, which reduces the constraints or the tunnel vision we usually live in, visiting the same types of thoughts and judgments on a habitual basis, which form the foundation for a sense of self. And by shaking that up a bit and allowing us to escape it, we're now able to see things from a broader perspective and able to change our thinking in a, in a more conscious way, because now we're able to see it as this objective thing that's separate from us. And so psychedelics can definitely attenuate or reduce our sense of self and our, our identification with our thinking and thought processes in a way perhaps similar to deep meditative states. And this can allow new insights to emerge, new perspectives, and again, an escape from our habitual thought patterns that might not be so healthy. And so not only does it give you this shakeup of your usual patterns, it seems to be really working in your favor and trying to help you change and give you this opportunity to do it. But like new connections will only be sustained when they're activated over and over again, right? So if you create this new neuroplastic connection, but you're not in some sense activating that connection in a conscious way, it'll fade away over time because your brain's like, oh, I guess I don't need this connection anymore. This episode is for you if you love to geek out over the neuroscience of psychedelics and want to have a better understanding of what's happening in the brain under the influence of these powerful substances. And so before diving into this conversation with Manesh, I just want to help set the context here and share why I loved this conversation so much and why I think this information is so important. So over the last few years, I've been developing a unique framework for working with psychedelics that weaves together Eastern philosophy with neuroscience, quantum mechanics, flow state research, behavioral psychology, with research in the fields of creativity, mindset, and resilience, with psychedelic science that offers a framework for essentially codifying breakthrough and transformation to really fundamentally support us in expanding what we believe is possible to create with our lives. So neuroscience is one of the threads I weave into my framework, and I'm not a neuroscientist, although I have taken some courses on Coursera and I read quite a lot of books and neuroscience literature because it's an area that really interests me. And because I'm weaving it into my content, I feel a huge sense of responsibility in making sure the information I'm sharing is accurate. And I also spend a lot of time reading psychedelic science literature, which is actually how I found Manesh, who's a neuroscience PhD student at McGill University in Montreal, which also happens to be my hometown. And he's been lead author or co-author on over a dozen scientific publications and book chapters on topics including psychedelics, meditation, daydreaming, and brain networks. And so he was lead author on a specific paper that caught my attention called Updating the Dynamic Framework of Thought, Creativity, and Psychedelics that Robin Carhart Harris was also a co-author on, whose name you might recognize because Robin is probably one of the most well-known researchers in the space and leads a team at Imperial College Center for Psychedelic Research. 
And this paper on creativity and psychedelics was literally one of the main factors that inspired me to go back to graduate school. So after leading retreats for over a decade, I'm on sort of a forced sabbatical due to COVID. So I decided to take advantage of this open window of time and go back to school. And so I'm pursuing a master's in science, and the program is called Creativity Studies and Change Leadership. And I'm focusing all of my papers and my master's project on the intersection and overlap between creative thinking and creative problem solving with psychedelics. And I think this is a really unexplored area or niche within the psychedelic space. And I honestly think that this is where the conversation is headed. And I feel really called to hold space for that conversation and play an influential role in our understanding around how plant medicines and psychedelics can help us unlock greater degrees of creativity in our lives and also helping to shift the narrative around creativity, which in my opinion, and many others is one of the most crucial mindsets we can learn to cultivate for navigating these intense times of change we are living in. And so the direction I'm excited to be taking for my retreats is focusing on working with teams, corporate teams and business teams that are open to exploring plant medicines, of course, within legal jurisdictions, as a way to not only foster team building, but to also leverage windows of mental flexibility, which we're going to talk about in this episode and how psychedelics help us do that and why that can be so important for catalyzing change and teaching teams cognitive tools and processes for enhancing creative problem solving, ultimately so we can uncover solutions to some of the most complex challenges we collectively face, which, as we know, there's no shortage of those. And so when I found Manesh through that paper on creativity, and I reached out to connect with him, and he's just such a super sweet and wonderful human being, and he agreed to hop on a call for this interview, I was just like, Oh my goodness, I have a psychedelic neuroscientist full attention. Quick, ask him everything. And so what I really loved and appreciated about this conversation was that I was able to frame my questions by saying things like, okay, Manesh, this is the way I'm understanding this concept or idea based on the literature I'm reading. And I'm translating it in this way. So is it accurate to say that we see what we believe, for example? And then he would respond and really dive into the neuroscience behind it, which in this case, explaining the predictive coding model of the brain. And so this is what I mean when I say codifying breakthrough and how I'm taking this information that Manesh is sharing here, particularly in the domain of psychedelic neuroscience, and I'm combining it with other domains, other modalities and practices, as well as working with psychedelics and sacred plant medicines, including a microdosing practice to essentially help ignite rapid transformation in our lives and truly expand what we believe is possible. So paying attention to our limiting narratives and teaching ourselves how to rewrite old limiting beliefs is definitely one piece to the larger puzzle. And so this framework has not only been hugely beneficial in my own life, but in the lives of many of the people I've worked with as well. And one thing I really like about Manesh is that he's really good about deciphering fact from fiction, especially when it comes to psychedelic science and explaining complex ideas in a way that makes sense, which he also does on his YouTube channel called The Psychedelic Scientist and on Instagram as well under the same name. 
And so we kind of jump right off the deep end in this conversation where he offers his perspective on the default mode network and how it's being oversimplified and potentially overhyped in the psychedelic space. And in this process, he gets into the nitty gritty and describes all seven brain networks and their primary functions and touches on bottom up versus top down processing. And this links to the internal stories and narratives we create for our lives and how psychedelics disrupt what we call our models of reality and why that's helpful for interrupting this pattern that tends to be overly rigid. And so just to keep connecting the dots here in this larger conceptual framework that I'm just kind of obsessed with cultivating, I talk about this from an Eastern philosophy perspective in the last episode, number four, which was my first solo episode. And I point to a large body of wisdom teachings that discusses our inherent tendency to want to solidify everything, especially our sense of self and self-identity. And why that's so detrimental for so many reasons. And I point to the overlap and intersection between Buddhist thought and psychedelic science, especially to point out how we can combine them to rewrite old narratives that keep us living in a small way and allow us to step into a more dynamic, open-minded, fluid nature of relating to life. And so Manesh also touches on the neuroplasticity of psychedelics and how BDNF works in the brain, which is brain-derived neurotropic factor, and the importance of cultivating a daily practice because, as we know, there's a big difference between altered states and altered traits, and how to take advantage of this window of heightened cognitive flexibility post-psychedelic experience, which is also a lot of where I focus my work on, especially combining daily practices with microdosing. And he also gets into the overlap between research in meditation and psychedelics and the parallels that he's noticing, and also points back to the default mode network and models of reality in that part of the interview as well. And he also touches on brainwave states, which is another area I'm really interested in. And I've actually done some intensive trainings in neurofeedback, which have radically changed the way I engage in and relate to my meditation practice. And he talks about how the shift in the alpha band is likely playing a role in how psychedelics are influencing the brain, and he goes into detail in that as well. We also get into how we keep perpetuating our limiting beliefs and storylines by diving into the rebus model, which unpacks our understanding of predictive coding. So again, we really geek out over some of the interesting models that help us understand how we experience reality. And then, of course, we dive into creativity and psychedelics. And Manesh also explains the difference between cognitive flexibility and psychological flexibility and also highlights a powerful question you can ask yourself to help integrate your psychedelic experience. He also shares his perspective on how psychedelics can be a powerful tool for helping to steer humanity's ship in a better direction, so to speak, and how his psychedelic research has directly impacted his life and perception of reality. So in the show notes and on my website, livefreelauraD.com, which is looking so much better these days, if you go to the podcast tab, this is episode number five, and I link to all of the scientific papers mentioned in this conversation. In that section, I'll also include links to other helpful resources, like an article I wrote on how psychedelics can help support your creative process. I also have an article on how to enhance cognitive flexibility and the importance of that, especially for the world we're living in today. 
And I also created a super comprehensive guide for working with psychedelics to help shift your internal narratives to transform the way you experience and relate to your life. As Byron Katie says, change your story, change your life. And I absolutely believe that to be true. I also have an article I'll link to, and I'll touch on this in the conversation with Manesh, so it will make more sense when you get to that part, that's specifically written for entrepreneurs or anyone who's working with psychedelics to foster more creative ideas. And the article is about knowing when to have the discernment for when to really act on a vision you experienced or received in the psychedelic space. And so all of these links are in the show notes and on my website. And under the freebies tab, you can also find access to my free eight-day microdosing course and my eight-hour music playlist for psychedelic journeys and beyond. Okay, so one little teaser I am so excited to share with you. I am releasing my conversation with Dr. Bruce Lipton for episode number seven. And so Bruce is the author of Biology of Belief and is like the founding father of the field of epigenetics. And he shares his support for the psychedelic movement in that conversation. And so, of course, Bruce is also talking about the power of using the mind to rewrite limiting beliefs. And you'll notice some parallels between that conversation and this one with Manesh. Okay, so that was a longer intro than anticipated. Thank you so much for sticking with me. I'll be ending this episode with a song called Warriors of Light by Samuel J., whom I had the absolute pleasure of meeting at Envision Festival last year when there were still festivals and gatherings going on. And all of his info will also be in the show notes. And again, if you appreciate his music, please support our beloved musicians. He also just came out with a new track called Closer, which is definitely worth checking out. Okay, so without any further ado, here's my conversation with psychedelic neuroscientist Manesh Gurn. Welcome, Manesh Gurn. I am so looking forward to having you on the show today. Thank you so much for spending your time here with me this morning. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. So I would just love to know, how did you come to studying the neuroscience of psychedelics? Yeah, it was a variety of things kind of coming together. Through some weird coincidences or synchronicities, I, I got really into meditation and Zen when I was around 16. Uh, as a way at that time of fighting certain feelings of depression and anxiety and like a lot of stuff people will go through in high school and kind of wanting a way to cope with that. And I got into Zen. And as I kind of started getting into meditation and reading more about Eastern mysticism, it got me into the self-help world. And I was just thinking about the ways in which our perception of the world and ourselves can vary so much and how that completely restructures our experience of life. And this, some way or another, led me into reading stuff about psychedelics and then here were these potent compounds able to catalyze these deep spiritual experiences and transformative experiences. And I thought it was fascinating and it interlinked a lot of interests I had in, in mysticism and in meditation and psychology and in philosophy. And uh, I thought, here's a fascinating thing with a lot of potential and I want to get involved in it. Wonderful. So on your YouTube channel, uh, The Psychedelic Scientist, I love how you're very dedicated to sifting through fact versus fiction. And I'd love to translate some of the density of the psychedelic literature into narratives that are easy for all of us to grasp. And at the same time, you know, we're in the midst of this psychedelic renaissance, and it's so important to be clear on what the research is really saying. And as you say in one of your YouTube videos, 
shows that, you know, we live in a world with clickbait titles and sensationalist news reporting. So I'm curious, what are some of the main areas you think are being overhyped in the media right now? Right. Yeah, it's an interesting topic. Um, so one of the things I, I believe to be pretty high, overhyped is the whole default mode network narrative. And um, the thing is, the psychedelic experience is extremely complex. And, you know, we know from brain studies that it changes, you know, uh, you could say activi- activity and connections, uh, spending the entire brain, essentially. And the default mode network has been emphasized a lot and saying how, you know, it, it kind of encodes our sense of self. And, uh, you know, if the default mode network has become disintegrated or deactivated, then our sense of self um, becomes, you know, deintegrated. And this whole narrative of how psychedelics are the ego quieter and all these things. And there's some truth to that for sure. But like even in the studies looking at correlations with people's scores on ego dissolution as they self-report it, it's often not involving the default mode network. It's definitely not involving only the default mode network. And, And even when it does involve the default mode network, it's involving a specific part of it, like one connection or, or something along those lines, not necessarily the disintegration of the entire network. And moreover, the default mode network is this very complex thing that's involved in a variety of processes, like apart from self-related processes. And so just to like view it as this self-network and say that it is disintegrated is totally, you know, it's, it's a huge simplification and in some cases not totally accurate. So I think that's overhyped. And um, another thing too is, you know, it, it's hard because uh, with psychedelics, people often, and this happened obviously in the 60s, uh, even late 50s too, uh, people become like super exuberant and excited about them as if they're a panacea that can solve everything. It's like, you know, put LSD in the water and everyone will be become Buddhas or something like this, uh, essentially. And it's really not the case. There's, uh, you know, there's the essential importance of context of, of set and setting, you know, of your mindset and intentions with the experience and uh, where you are when you're doing it and also how you integrate it. And so psychedelics don't do the work for you. They give you a transformative experience or insights that you can then with conscious and deliberate effort uh, integrate into a lasting way. And so some of these articles uh, kind of make it seem like you're just going to take them and all your ills are gone. But no, it's hard work and it's, it takes courage and persistence, even with psychedelics. And so I think that's important to take into account too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are, those are two main things, I guess, that come to mind. Mm-hmm. So can you just give us a layman's term definition of what the default mode network is? Mm, yes, totally. So, okay, that requires us to step back a bit. So if you look at the brain, it's like, you know, 100 billion brain cells or neurons connected by up to 10,000 connections each. And, you know, this is extremely complex, like unfathomably uh, complex. And so in order to understand it, you, you have to break down the brain into kind of components, right? Because that's what a lot of reductionist scientists does, uh, you know, science does. It reduces things into its components and looks at how, how they interact. And so one way of breaking down the brain is into brain regions. And the very, like, simply we can think of a brain region as perhaps a couple million brain cells, neurons, which we can say, let's say they activate together. We could separate the brain into kind of chunks of the brain, which seem to activate together and do a common function, right? And then if we look at all the brain regions across the entire brain, um, if we look at how the, those regions correlate with each other um, in their activity, you could see that they cluster into sets of brain regions. And each set of brain region is a network. And so there's various ways you could define brain regions, there's various ways you could define networks. Um, but a lot of neuroscientists kind of talk of the brain in terms of seven primary networks. 
So uh, I'll just list them off. So there's a visual network that's involved in processing visual information from our eyes and gives us a perception of the external world. Uh, there's a so-called somatomotor network, which is involved in our somatosensory, which is our sense of touch, and our motor, which is our ability to move our muscles and basically move our body, um, involved in those processes. Another network called uh, the salience network, which the network uh, does a number of things, but one of the things it does is it tags things in our environment as important, let's say, and draws our attention to them. So that's why it, it tells us what's salient. And basically is this way of automatically directing our attention to things that pop out, let's say. And then uh, there's another network called the dorsal attention network, which is involved in directing our attention in the external world in a, in a focused and directed way. So it's like if you want to focus on that tree and not the other trees, that's the dorsal attention network uh, that allows you to focus your attention on a particular aspect of your visual experience. And then there's another network called the limbic network, which is a network that essentially connects your lower, more evolutionarily older emotional areas with your cortex. And it, it kind of allows emotional information or inputs to influence our decision making and our thinking. So that's the limbic network. And then next is the so-called frontal parietal control network. This network is, is involved in what uh, researchers refer to as cognitive control or executive processing. It basically this corresponds to the type of thinking that we do when we're trying to solve a task. So it's problem solving and reasoning and kind of focusing to come to a solution to some problem. And that's the frontal parietal control network. And then lastly is the default mode network. So this network is very enigmatic and it's involved in a variety of functions, but you know, it's a set of brain regions uh, that kind of most importantly include the regions of the brain that are involved in memory. So both our memory of past experiences, which is our episodic memory, and also our a kind of conceptual knowledge. This network uh, kind of draws on our memory what we would call internally directed processes. So basically processes that involve manipulating our memories in terms of planning into the future, uh, which is essentially a form of imagination, and remembering our past, which is in some sense actually also a form of imagination too, which is interesting. And essentially it's involved, if I go into specific processes, it's involved in inferring the mental states of other people. It's called mentalizing, uh, how I kind of know what you might believe or think because of the way you're acting. That's a default mode network, helps with that. It's involved in creating this differentiation between things that correspond to us, like the self versus not. So this so-called self-related processing, processing of things related to us in a different way than things that are unfamiliar or not related to us. And as I mentioned, yeah, imagination processes and memory processes related to experiences. Also, um, in some sense, our ability to look at abstract associations between things, uh, which is called associative processing. It's also involved in this mind wandering and daydreaming. Uh, when we like we, we go about our day, are being hit by all these thoughts all the time. We go into little fantasies and uh, are constantly habitually thinking a lot of the time. That's a default mode network as well. So a lot of the thought is our sense of self in terms of our narrative uh, identity, our story of who we are, who we've been, who we're going to be. The thought is that the default mode network, including these memory regions, which involve our memories of our past experiences, as well as our concepts of who we are, mediate those patterns of activity related to those. We're creating this narrative in our head of who we are, and this gives us our sense of being a distinct individual uh, that is continuous in time. Yeah, so the default mode network is this complex set of brain regions involved in all these processes. Um, and each of these processes involves like a different subset of the default mode network. So there's like specialization within it too, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And so it's like this very complex 
multi-subsystem brain network that's involved in a whole variety of cognitive processes. And essentially any, any aspect of your thinking, perception, or behavior that draws on memory in some form uh, will you know, involve some aspect of the DFMO network. Mm-hmm. And I understand just the sheer magnitude of complexity when talking about the different networks. Um, I read quite often that the default mode network sits at the top of a hierarchy in the brain. Is that Mm. accurate? Yes, yes. Actually, the way I just described the networks was from the low end of the hierarchy to the high end. So I deliberately did that just now. And I actually have a paper that's currently under review that corresponds to this this particular model of understanding the brain. And this hierarchy, we could say uh, on the model or notion or idea, uh, is based on the fact that, you know, if we look at the, this hierarchy is in terms of, we could say, distance from our raw sensory inputs. So like sensory processing areas is processing information um, of a sense of touch, a sense of hearing, vision. We can see that as low in the hierarchy because it's basically just taking in information from the outside. Whereas the default mode network is involved in these very abstract cognitive processes that group together a lot of distinct sensory processes into like integrated representations, you could say. So like a particular thought you had of your future or of your, of your past will include maybe visual, auditory, emotional, uh, tactile, sense-touched aspects. And in that sense, it's a higher level in the hierarchy because it's kind of above and including what's below. You know what I mean? And, and also we can see in the brain that when you take in information through our senses, there's both uh, anatomical evidence and also evidence in terms of brain imaging that those inputs go up this kind of processing stream one by one each place until they peak at the default mode network and related regions. And so there seems to be this uh, what researchers would call large scale functional hierarchy in the brain that goes from sensory processing to abstract processing in the default mode network. So that has been uh, definitely shown through a variety of methods. Mm-hmm. I, I know it's this tendency to want to oversimplify, but we do know that something is happening with the default mode network when we're ingesting psychedelic substances. And without going into you know full ego disillusion. And I know a lot of people are, you know, talking about these mystical experiences and also just speaking to the second half of what you initially said in the opening of this conversation, that it's not necessarily all fun and games. We have to really work with them within a framework of integration. So it's not like we're trying to just like achieve this ego disillusion experience. But aside from that, do psychedelics help us to just even pause in this, in the story that we tell ourselves about who we are? and our sense of self and our sense of self-identity and the narrative that we have about our lives. Is that happening and is that helpful? And is that what is contributing to some of the benefits that we receive? Yeah, definitely. Uh, it definitely is. And, and I want to say like psychologically, like this stuff is definitely happening. It's just what I'm trying to draw attention to is like we don't quite know what exactly that corresponds to in the brain. And the FOMO network is definitely highly involved, but it's far from being totally understood. But yeah, definitely psychedelics interrupt our typical narratives and let us peer beyond them in a temporary way. And again, this could relate to an alteration of memory related processing within the default mode network which reduces the constraints or the tunnel vision we usually live in, visiting the same types of thoughts and judgments 
on a habitual basis, which form the foundation for a sense of self. And by shaking that up a bit and allowing us to escape it, we're now able to see things from a broader perspective and able to change our thinking in a, in a more conscious way because now we're able to see it as this objective thing that's separate from us. And so psychedelics can definitely, you know, of course, attenuate or reduce our sense of self and our, our identification with our thinking and thought processes in a way perhaps similar to deep meditative states. And this can allow new insights to emerge, new perspectives, and again, an escape from our habitual thought patterns that might not be so healthy. Mm-hmm. So when I read the literature in neuroscience, I hear reference to the brain being this predictive coding machine. You know, Michael Pollan talks mm-hmm. about it in his book, and I don't want to reduce the, the brain to a machine by any means. Um, but is that part of what's going on where, I mean, is it accurate to say that we see what we believe, that we experience in the present what our neurological wiring has been um, predetermined from our upbringing and that our current present moment of reality is heavily influenced and biased by our past. Is that accurate to say? Yes, I definitely, I believe, I believe that is for sure. And um, it's interesting. I'm not sure if you've come across this, but uh, Robin Carhart Harris, uh, you know, he's a lead psychedelic researcher, another researcher named Carl Friston, who's one of the most highly cited, you know, scientists in neuroscience who really talks about this stuff a lot. Um, they proposed a model of psychedelics in terms of predictive coding. So in terms of this idea that the brain is constantly trying to predict what's going to happen and perceives the world through its predictions as opposed to what is actually happening. And before I describe that model, I'm just talking more about predictive coding. It's, it kind of makes sense from a number of perspectives because if you think about it, we're in this very complex world. And if our brain like constantly has to perceive from, from scratch every single moment and process this information as it's coming in, that takes up a lot of energy. And it's actually, if you think about it, it's more economical for the brain to come up with models that kind of anticipate what's going to come. So all you need to do is maybe make slight changes to your models that you have as opposed to processing everything from the ground up again. And also as humans, you know, we like consistency and stability and predictability. Otherwise, you know, our life will descend into chaos. And so the brain is trying to keep us in a kind of state of homeostasis such that, you know, we feel like we're, we're in a predictable, stable environment. And how it does that is by creating these expectations or models um, or priors, as, as the research might call it, which represent what is likely to occur best based on our past experiences. And so to go back to that Rebus model, they're proposing that psychedelics actually reduce the rigidity or the strength of our internal models and now have us suddenly become much more open to what is happening in the moment and various things that we might have been ignoring because when we live in our concepts, that means we're living through a filter and we're not experiencing the world in this direct way. Yeah, so I definitely agree that there's some kind of predictive coding type thing going on in the brain. And that's like a leading model of brain function that a lot of neuroscientists uh, agree with in some capacity. And um, it's interesting to think of psychedelics in relation to that too. And yeah, we could dive much more into that too, if you want. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd actually love to take it one step further and link it into how psychedelics are a potential catalyst for healing past trauma. And so from my understanding, when we're children, we're in a certain brainwave state where we're very receptive to what's happening around us. And neurological connections get created in the mind based on survival-based mechanisms telling us that, okay, this is how we need to perceive reality to operate within it to survive, whether it's an abusive household or whatever the situation is. And so I'm curious, is it accurate to say that 
those neurological um, imprints that happen and that get formed as children, that then we take that and we look for that. Is that what our salience network um, chooses to focus on in the environment? Because I've I've heard a lot of varying um, perspectives on this, that in any given moment, we're exposed to you know, billions of bits of data, but we choose to focus on and pay attention to what we've been conditioned to based on our past experience. If we're taught to believe that money is hard to come by or, you know, that um, the world is a dangerous place, do we keep reinforcing that from a neuroscience perspective? Yes, I think we definitely do. Yeah, because in some sense, the brain is making these hypotheses, right? These predictions and is trying to look for evidence that confirms them, right? And so, as you said, like when you're like in early childhood, when you're really forming these models in a very strong way, then you're very sensitive to things that happen. And if something is, you know, if you have an intense experience at that age, you imprint it within your brain as like how the world is or how you are, right? And when that becomes rigidified and it's like rigid in your brain, it's going to be hard to let go of it. You got, because your brain is going to be constantly trying to find evidence for it. It's being using that as a model to filter our experiences. So it's going to take a lot of evidence to the contrary uh, to shake it up. And sometimes, you know, no matter what, you, you explain away things that happen and you try to fit your narrative. And so it's definitely a matter of your brain creating these models of who you are in the world is and trying to maintain them because they give your world predictability. And even if it's like, you know, a traumatic memory or let's say it's a belief that I'm unworthy of success. And the thing is that belief formed in early childhood was a way of you making sense of your experience and a way of making it understood because we as humans, we need to have things make sense. And, um, and then later on, even though it's not serving us, it, ser- it still serves this protect- protective mechanism that protects us from the chaos of uncertainty, right? And so even though it's causing us all this suffering and not allowing us to achieve our potential, uh, we cling to it because it makes us feel safe. And, and if we were to let go of that, then who am I? What's the world? You know, and you, you can really open up this kind of Pandora's box of questioning your assumptions about reality, which can be very frightening if you're not prepared. And so from a brain perspective, linking to the salience network, I think, you know, makes a lot of sense. And there are a number of other things contributing, like, for example, the thalamus, which is like a deeper region within the brain that gates sensory input and allows certain things in and ignores other things, kind of relating to the models I was discussing before. But definitely the salience network, because if you think about it, it's tagging things as important based on something, right? Some of that is just biological, like you're going to pay attention to a a big flashing light or or like, you know, something really rapidly moving close to you. But if in the absence of that, there's other processes that contribute to what stands out for you. And yeah, I would argue that it's based on the models you have of of the world and who you are, because things that relate to who you are are important for you. And so you're going to notice them. If it's important to you to recognize, for example, um, how other people are reacting to you, you know, you're just going to your, t- your attention is always going to be directed to that and you're going to be constantly hung up on how others perceive you. And that again is related to this model you've internalized to understand and filter the world. And so in that Rebus model I mentioned earlier is that psychedelics, by reducing the rigidity of these models, we're able to see them for what they are and, and it gives us the opportunity to revise them, to go deep down and see, is this, does this really hold up? Is there information I've been ignoring? Is there a way I can revise this in a healthier way? And I think that's one of the main potentials of psychedelics is like shake up our snow globe, if some people would say it, and give us the opportunity to reform our beliefs and fundamental models of reality and who we are in a, in a more healthy way. 
And so would you say that the technical term, the the word that we're using is models here, but is that synonymous with stories, beliefs, personal narratives about how the world Mm. operates and our place in it? Totally. Yeah. So it's like models, beliefs, narrative stories, priors is what researchers would call it. Uh, So all these things like more or less, yeah, correspond to a very similar thing. So essentially, we have this story of how reality is. And I think of it as like a box. And there's a neurological underpinning to this box. And then it seems like we're trying to, every single day, use everything that we can to fit what we experience back into the box rather than think outside of the box. And so I hear you saying that psychedelics widen that box of possibility of of being able in those moments to reach for or a new thought or a new idea or, oh, maybe it's not this way. Maybe it's that way. Maybe this belief isn't supporting me. Maybe I can choose that belief. Is is that accurate to say? Yeah, yeah, totally. That's exactly it. Like uh, This is kind of what I wrote in that paper you mentioned earlier, the updating the dynamic framework of thought, creativity and psychedelics. And the idea there was it was exactly that, that psychedelics reduce the, the constraints that we have on our thinking. And as in the language we've been talking about, like reduce the, the strength of our models and explaining how things are and lowers our certainty in how things are. And now we're able to entertain all sorts of ideas previously we would think are incorrect or not worth pursuing. So it kind of expands our range of potential ideas that we'll take into consideration and can therefore you know, allow us to get out of little ruts in our thinking and see new associations and connections and, and yeah, have more creative uh, novel ideas. Mm-hmm. So it's totally... Totally that. Mm-hmm. One of the things we hear so often in terms of how psychedelics affect the mind is that different parts of the brain that previously weren't speaking to each other start communicating. So what does that really mean? And what do we really know about that? And how much is that affecting this rewiring of beliefs? Yeah, that's a really good question. It's, it's really interesting. You know, brain regions in the brain or brain networks become more interconnected with each other uh, as a general trend. So there are, in general, more connections as a whole between regions in the psychedelic state. But like how exactly that links to our patterns of thinking is not something that's clearly defined. Because like the current state of neuroscience, we can't really say exactly what specific patterns like in an ongoing dynamic way relate to specific thoughts. But we know, you know, the default mode network, as I mentioned, is involved in mind wandering and daydreaming and, and thought processes like that. And so the idea is by changing the interconnections between the default mode network, let's say, and other networks, we're potentially now uh, allowing the system to enter into different states. And even within the default mode network too, there's changes in connections, of course. And the idea is that every particular, let's say, thought that you have is corresponds to a particular pattern of interactions between brain cells, between neurons. And in the psychedelic state, since there's kind of this relaxation of these constraints, Everything is a bit more uh, entropic is the word I want to say, which just means it's more unpredictable or make more chaotic. And so like how that relates to the interconnection stuff is that, you know, if the brain has more connections to work with, that means there's more patterns it can enter into in a dynamic way, right? And so enhanced ability to enter these new patterns of connections, which um, kind of weren't present before and which relate to new thought patterns that weren't available before. So yeah, I hope that answers uh, what you would ask. Mm -hmm. And definitely leading us into the segue here of creativity and cognitive flexibility. And before I get there, I just want to ask you one more quick question about this state of heightened mental flexibility and 
your perspective on post that window, post psychedelic experience in terms of integration? Do you have any thoughts on how people can really leverage that time? And do you think that just the psychedelic experience is enough for people to fundamentally, you know, rewrite old limiting beliefs into positive ones? Or do you feel like it really requires uh, more effort and day-to-day conscious focus and mindfulness around that? And any suggestions? Questions you have for how people can leverage that time. Yeah, totally. And I mean, I'm sure anybody who, who's like approached some kind of self-growth work will realize, you know, the brain always wants to return to, to some kind of default, you know, you, you'll change this pattern. And then as soon as you slip, it's going to go flying back to where it was before. So your brain is like a, it's a very, what's the word, stubborn organ in terms of changing behavior. And so definitely psychedelics open up this window of opportunity to create these, you know, neuroplastic changes and make changes in our behavior. But in order to make them last, you have to have a daily practice where you're kind of reminding yourself of them and trying to consciously maintain them. And this is easier at first, but gets harder as you go into, you know, new context again in your life and you get back into your rhythms. And um, it's so easy to fall back into past patterns. I mean, just because you have this experience of unitive oneness with the universe and feel this bliss, doesn't mean like a week later that, you know, you could be an asshole again. And that's, you know, it's totally possible. And so it's definitely important to, for example, something they do in the studies, at least at John Hopkins, is after the experience, they ask them to write a narrative report of what happened and just try to write a story of how the experience went. Um, And of course, this is an extremely difficult thing to do. And part of it will be fabrication or just like kind of interpreting and putting things that aren't truly there, perhaps. It's an exercise that allows you to have a means of remembering what you went through and um, what it meant to you. And I think having something to cling on to and hold on to that reminds you of the experience and allows you to contextualize it in your re- regular life is super important. And taking conscious steps to, you know, maybe write it down and make it into actionable steps, um, because sometimes the insights will be very abstract and you have realizations, but then it'd be like, you know, you can ask yourself the question, what would it look like for me to act in accordance with this insight tomorrow or something or today? And really, you got to derive actionable insights from these experiences and on an ongoing daily basis, have some kind of journaling practice where you note them down and and keep them in your mind and uh, try to implement them. Otherwise, definitely, they will fade away with time. Mm -hmm. And so when we're talking about this heightened window of mental flexibility, I'm curious to separate fact from fiction here in terms of sensationalist news reporting. But is it fully accurate to say that psychedelics support neuroplasticity based on the research? Yeah, totally. There are studies in mice looking at um, how psychedelics, specifically psilocybin, LSD, and 5-MeO-DMT, for example, can increase certain, uh, let's say, chemicals or growth factors, as they're called, which correspond to making more neurons and making more connections, essentially, between them. And so it really, it gives your brain, it seems to give your brain more resources that it needs to carry out these neuroplastic changes. And so not only does it give you this shakeup of your usual patterns, it's also providing your brain with the resources to encode or instantiate uh, the new ones. So it seems to be really working in your favor and trying to help you change and give you this opportunity to do it. But again, like neurons, new connections will only be sustained when they're activated over and over again, right? So if you create this new neuroplastic connection, 
but you're not in some sense activating that connection in a conscious way, it'll fade away over time because your brain's like, oh, I guess I don't need this connection anymore. So psychedelics do give you the resources for neurogenesis and neuroplasticity, as uh, we would call it. Um, but of course, there's much more research is needed on to what extent can actually support these processes in a very strong and noticeable way. And is that through BDNF, yes. uh, through brain-derived neurotropic factor? Exactly. So that's what I was referring to. There's increases in BDNF, yeah, mm-hmm. through the administration of psychedelics, which activate the serotonin to a receptor. Mm-hmm. I hear it being called the miracle grow for your brain. Is that true? I mean, uh, maybe not. <laughs> I mean, it's definitely, <laughs> I mean, how I can describe it is it's like a, it's like a chemical that gives the resources for enabling, you know, neuroplastic connections. The miracle grower is a bit of a, a bit of a jump, I think. Uh-huh. Okay. That's good to know. All right. <laughs> um, so I am so curious to jump into this conversation around creativity and how psychedelics might help support creative thinking, creative problem solving. Now, as soon as we use the word creativity, it's also like opening up a Pandora's box here. And I I really love the way the cultural narrative around how we think about creativity is starting to shift. I mean, I know there's probably a lot of people listening to this who think in the old paradigm that, oh, there's a small percentage of people who are creative and then there's everyone else. And I was one of those people too. And then it was in the past few years that I started really reading the research and hearing very bold statements from CEOs of Fortune 500 companies saying that creativity is the number one most important skill set that we can foster in the 21st century. So learning how to enhance our cognitive flexibility to be thinking outside the box and especially in the face of just so many complex challenges that we face. So I'd love to dive into creativity with you and just wanted to set that premise for people that we're not just talking about being an artist and painting on canvases. It's so much broader than that. And I'm curious why you were interested in looking at the research between um, updating a dynamic framework of thought around creativity. And maybe we could just start with a definition um, from your perspective, a definition of creativity, which of course is so hard to define, but maybe we could just start there. Yeah. I mean, there are obviously a lot of definitions of creativity depending on the domain where you're going to apply it. But scientists, they usually talk about creativity in terms of two primary components. So first it has to be novel. The idea has to be new uh, and going above and beyond anything that's been produced before. So yeah, it has to be novel. And then also it has to be useful. It has to be applicable to some um, end in some useful way. It has to be appropriate or adaptive for a new situation. You know, because you could think of having a new idea, which is not useful. You have this idea, it's totally novel and never been, you know, come up with before, but you can't find a practical application. So usually in scientific research, it has to be both new and have a particular use uh, that's, that's definable. So novel and useful. Mm-hmm. And I think that second portion is really helpful when so many, you know, visionaries and change makers and entrepreneurs are working with psychedelics these days and tapping into these visionary states and getting like all sorts of ideas. And then, you know, the second part is how practical is this? Because of course we can have a lot of crazy thoughts under the influence of these substances. So just to, to state that in terms of anyone who's consciously working with psychedelics to enhance um, idea generation and 
to come up with novel ideas to use the second part rationally. How useful mm -hmm. is this and how applicable is this, especially for finding solutions to the challenges we face? Totally. Um, <laughs> so in terms of your paper, what did you discover about the update of the dynamic framework of thought? What did you learn through that paper that you wrote on creativity and psychedelics in terms of how we need to think about creative thinking? Yeah, so totally. First, I'll just describe what that model is saying. And basically, it's a model of thinking in general that characterizes different types of thinking in terms of how much constraint is on the thinking. And this constraint can come from our emotions or our biases or a kind of unconscious tendencies or from our deliberate kind of conscious intention. And so we describe different types of thinking in terms of these two dimensions, like how constrained or unconstrained was it in terms of unconscious and conscious influences. So for example, if we want to think about uh, you're trying to solve a specific problem that's very, you know, analytical and requires non-creative, just like straight up problem solving, then you just need to be very, very constrained in your thinking because you're in a deliberate way. So you're deliberately constraining it to this problem and focusing on just that problem to solve it. Whereas in creativity, there is some kind of deliberate focus, but you're also, you don't want to be too constrained, too unconsciously constrained or deliberately constrained. And so it'd be kind of contrasted with normal problem solving in that sense and having less constraints on it. And that model, which was originally proposed back in 2016, in a nature neuroscience review paper by the professor who I worked with at the time, proposed this model of mental states or thoughts or different types of thinking. And so what I wanted to do was to expand it to also include psychedelics and also really emphasize creativity. Because in that original paper, it talked about all sorts of other types of thinking and mind wandering, dreaming, and uh, as well as creativity and goal-directed intentional thinking. And it mentioned creativity in like three sentences and that's it. And so in this paper, I wanted to update it to give a more nuanced perspective on creativity and include psychedelics. So this more nuanced perspective, you could say, is addressing the fact that creativity isn't just one mental state you go into. It's a very dynamic thing in the kind of the terms of creativity researchers. It's a dynamic dance between idea generation and idea evaluation. And so these two things are distinct in terms of psychological processes and also in terms of the brain. And when we're, when we're usually trying to come up with a creative idea, um, it involves, you know, generating the ideas and like, oh, is this a good idea? Yes or no? Oh, let's go back to generating. And it's kind of this kind of iterative uh, process of going back and forth. And so in, in terms of the model, this means like we're going back and forth between unconstrained and more constrained thinking and it's dance between them. And uh, what the research has shown is that you ideally want to keep these two things separate. So you want to have your, gen your idea generation and generate all of your ideas without evaluating them, without kind of considering them and how useful or novel they are. Just like get them all out. And then subsequently later on, you want to evaluate them in a separate process. This is again, because engaging this constrained thinking that's needed for evaluating your ideas, you can limit the unconstrained processes that are needed to generate them, right? So in this paper, we reviewed some of the research providing evidence for this and providing evidence for how these two things are, are different in the brain. And then we include psychedelics and say psychedelics are just like in a very unconstrained state of cognition, of thinking, 
that is like very hyper associative. We find associations between various things we, we thought might be unrelated before. It's also more visual, imagistic. We can kind of see things a bit more in a visual manner. There's kind of sometimes illogical, you could say jumps between different thoughts that you don't really see the connection, but you hop around in your thought process. Um, and also there's reduced need to make things realistic when you're in the psychedelic state. Uh, like anything goes and all is let loose. And so we're arguing that psychedelics represent an unconstrained state of cognition that facilitates the generation of novel ideas and that um, it's great for idea generation to create new ideas. And then you'd have to, outside of the psychedelic state, then evaluate them in this more directed, deliberate way. Um, and that was like the main idea of that paper. And would you say the unconstrained cognition aspect of the psychedelic state is facilitated by this notion that different parts of the brain that don't usually speak to each other start communicating in new ways? Is that is that related? Yeah, it, it could be. It's, it's an interesting thing. Like, I mean, the real answer is I don't really know. But in terms of what people have said, one perspective on the default mode network, for example, is that it, it exerts a constraining influence on the rest of the brain and keeps us, uh, as I've said, it encodes these high level, these models or narratives which makes sense of everything else and give us a sense of stability and order. And then in this particular model, like proposed by Robin Carderas, is his entropic brain model, where basically the brain at baseline, let's say a more evolutionarily older brain, is always in a state of unconstrained cognition, relatively speaking. And that these newer brain areas, it's a default mode network, evolutionarily newer, uh, are constraining that unconstrained kind of natural baseline state of the brain and giving it order. And so one of the ways the psychedelic state is unconstrained, relatively speaking, is because these connections which were reducing uh, or constraining other brain regions are now altered or disrupted in some way. So while there is an increased interconnections between most of the brain, which might relate to you know increased associative thinking and seeing the relationships between things, there's also a reduction in certain connections which might be imposing this constraining influence on more primitive brain areas. Yeah, I hope that wasn't too confusing. <laughs> no, no, that was great. So it also sounds like the analogy that I've heard is that when we're children, we're very often in uh, lantern consciousness where our perceptual field of awareness is very wide open. And then as we age, we become more narrowly focused on spotlight consciousness mm -hmm. and that this psychedelic experience allows us to tap into those experience again of broadening our perceptual field of awareness. Yeah, yeah, totally. And that's often how Robin and others uh, have talked about it. It's definitely, it puts us in a more childlike uh, state of brain dynamics that, as you said, allows a widening of our perceptual field and our ability to explore the far reaches of thinking that usually we don't explore because we don't think it's realistic. Um, I'm kind of surprised actually at how little research is being focused on right now in terms of psychedelics and creativity. Um, and I understand, you know, we're facing the worst mental health crisis in human history. And I think one of the things that I've been realizing is that the mechanisms for which psychedelics help support the treatment of addiction and depression seem to be the similar uh, neural underpinnings that help us think more creatively. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, it's interesting because one of the things that, let's talk about the therapy side first, one of the things they found uh, in the therapy is that uh, one of the strong mediators of positive outcomes is 
you know, on one side, it's having a mystical unitive experience, but it's also that mystical unitive experiences leads to greater psychological flexibility. But there's an important distinction uh, to be made here between cognitive flexibility, which is directly related to creativity and psychological flexibility, which is something that comes from uh, certain types of therapy. And so cognitive flexibility is it's more related to creativity in the sense that it's the ability to not get too hung up on, let's say, one thought or one interpretation of something and being able to switch between mindsets and not get bogged down in a particular issue or a problem and um, be fluid in our thinking. That would be cognitive flexibility. And psychological flexibility, which is something that's emphasized in these psychedelic research uh, clinical trials, more so corresponds to an ability to be fully present in the, in the current moment and um, able to consciously control our behavior in a way that's consistent with our values and with you know what we want to do, as opposed to being unconscious and just acting out our impulses. And so one of the main aspects of psychedelics which enabled their therapeutic effect is because they allow people to be in a mental state where they're able to accept their current experience, accept their emotions, positive or negative, accept their thoughts for what they are, um, while simultaneously giving you some distance from them so you're not totally immersed and identified with them. And therefore, allowing this new space for conscious action and conscious change and ability to really reflect on what do I value, who, what kind of person do I want to be, how can I act more in accordance with that, and kind of giving you that ability for psychological flexibility in the moment. Psychedelics enable that, but you can also see how psychedelic flexibility can give rise to cognitive flexibility. Because if you're more grounded in here in the moment and operating from a place of conscious choice rather than reactivity, then you're able to more easily navigate your thought process and see things from a wider perspective instead of going into tunnel vision mode. So definitely these two things are interrelated and uh, the exact relationships between them is you know, a topic for future research, but there's definitely something there. I'm curious your perspective on this notion that a more connected brain allows us to see a more connected reality and ourselves immersed in a more connected um, storyline or narrative in terms of our connection to nature and our connection to other people and even our connection to our own selves. Do you think that there's this um, neural underpinning to this experience that so many people have of enhancing their perception of how inherently we are connected to nature and to each other? Yeah, I mean, it, yes, it could be. Like how I think about it is that, you know, we could say that ego dissolution states where our sense of being an individual self is reduced or dissolved are in some part related to this tendency of our brain to become hyper-connected, right? Um, because now when we lose our sense of, for example, of where our body is or where it begins and ends, this is because the areas of your brain that integrate our sense of our bodily position are now becoming disrupted and perhaps integrating more information than they're used to. And now your visual information is being included in there too, for example. So you feel like you know, you're merging with the couch you're sitting on. And so I think an increased interconnectivity of the brain is related to our sense of increased connection with ourselves, the world, and others, insofar as it relates to ego dissolution. So I think what's, what's important here is that the thing that's maintaining our separateness from other people in the world is our, our narratives, our sense of ego, our sense of you know, distinct identity. 
And so when that is reduced, we're now opened up beyond our absorption or preoccupation into our, into our concerns and what's important for us and, you know, putting us at the center of the world. Once that kind of fades away, you would naturally feel this more greater connection and alignment with, with life and with, with, you know, with the planet and with others. And I think, you know, that could be a byproduct of increased interconnectivity, but, um, but yeah, again, it's, I think it's the ego dissolution aspect that contributes to that the most. But we do see from the research that the sense of nature relatedness um, has really enduring effects in people's mm-hmm. lives. Same with the personality trait openness. And openness is also directly related to um, enhanced creativity, creative thinking. Are you drawing any of those parallels between openness and creativity? Yeah, um, definitely see the connection there. Openness is basically, yeah, it's an openness to new experiences. It's also a connection with your internal fantasy world. It's an openness to new lines of thinking. It's a, it's a kind of an aesthetic appreciation. And so it kind of makes sense that psychedelics, when they put you more in tune with life and less trapped within your internal narrative, um, that you just appreciate things more and you feel more connected. And um, when you're in that more connected state, Again, I feel like you're less rigid or constrained or tunnel vision in your thinking in general. And that could lead us to, yeah, this being more more free with our thinking, which leads to creativity and like kind of new associations and, and all the rest. So I definitely think there's an important relationship there. And I'm, I'm curious your thoughts on how you feel like psychedelics and plant medicines might be able to play a role in really uh, shifting the way that humans live on this planet? I know this is such a big question, um, but where do you see the role of psychedelics to help us think bigger and to come up with novel solutions to the challenges we face? And thinking about Einstein's quote around, you know, we can't solve the problems at the same level that they were created. Do you feel like psychedelics can play a very pivotal role in helping to um, steer humanity's ship in a, a better direction? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think they definitely have the potential to play an important role. How I view it is like a lot of this conflict is through ego, ego sustained uh, division, right? In a sense of separateness from each other. And just all the internalized resentment and anger and all the rest that comes with our society these days that a lot of people are harboring. And I feel like psychedelics, when used in the right context, you know, with mental health professionals in in a therapeutic setting, have the potential to open people up and have more compassion for themselves, for the world, and also let go of some of that anger and some of the roots of their mental afflictions that everyone is struggling with to some degree, whether it's diagnosable or not. And so I feel like, you know, what is manifesting is all this conflict on the external collective level is like, of course, it's a consequence of the internal conflicts that everyone's undergoing. And I think if we if we're able to do psychedelics in these in um, if, there, if it's main, made mainstream and available to people in this therapeutic way, I think it has a strong potential to help start people opening more and more people up. And hopefully these people who witness the healing power, as is already happening, of course, then go on to share this with others and share their story and connect with different demographics, different populations, more and more people. I think importantly from different demographics and not just, you know, already the spiritually meditative uh, inclined people. Um, I think that would be huge to spread through all the networks and, you know, allow people to see beyond their limiting narratives. But again, like, you know, it's, it's not the case that people can just all take psychedelics and everything be okay. It's 
other people maybe are not ready for psychedelics. And I keep stressing to do it with a mental health professional because difficult things can and will come up. And you can like get into a dark place after taking a psychedelic, of course, too. And so you got to be very careful with these things. Yeah, it really does take that willingness to actually implement the changes that we want to see take root into our lives in those moments where, you know, we can choose to show up with more understanding and more compassion and less judgment and criticism. And so I think emphasizing that it's not just this, you know, take psychedelics and everything's going to be shanti and peaceful. Mm-hmm. We're, we're still in the, in the bridge uh, to, you know, a new narrative around this world that we're living in. And um, what are some of the parallels that you're drawing between psychedelics and meditation in terms of the neuroscience? First of all, I should say the meditation literature is very large. A lot of the studies vary in quality, and there's a lot of stuff out there of overhyped bias towards presenting only positive findings and like not talking about any of the findings that didn't pan out. So giving this unclear view of what actually is going on and how effective meditation really is for all these various things it's being proposed as uh, effective for. But like one very basic thing is that often, you know, in meditation, specifically in like mindfulness types, you are trying to create this open awareness where you're not being attached to your thoughts and emotions and your sense of self, essentially. And you do get similar reductions in default mode network activity in meditation as you do with psychedelics, specifically in terms of mindfulness type meditations. So I think a parallel there is that as in psychedelics, in meditation, you are creating this mental state where you're stepping back from your thoughts, feelings, stories, emotions, and seeing things from a broader perspective and a perspective that enables insight into your patterns and, and kind of gives you the ability to try to change them. And uh, and again, this ego, you know, I wouldn't say dissolution unless you're meditating for a long time and you have this experience, but I would say ego attenuation or reduction is maybe a common psychological process that incurs uh, between them. Mm. It's so interesting to talk about this ego disillusion when we also see ego inflation as a result of psychedelic use. Have you come across this or noticed this? And what is that all about? Yeah, it's so interesting. I think part of it is, you know, you get the psychedelic and you have this profound experience and you feel like, you know, this is it. I get it. Like I, I'm the chosen one. I'm here to tell all of humanity the truth, right? And you go into this messianic kind of uh, state and that's very possible during an experience if, if you have that kind of personality tendency and you're not grounded enough by people around you. And you start to think you you know everything and you got to share it with everyone from this very authoritative place. And what I would say is, you know, at the end of the day, psychedelics are giving you this amazing gift, the gift of essentially unearned wisdom, unearned mystical experience, right? And it's allowing you to enter this state temporarily. I think the right response, of course, is humility and gratitude and having the ability to have this experience without having to engage in rigorous mental practices for like a decade. But I think some people get too caught up in that experience and assume all the work has been done for them. And now they entered this permanent nirvana and, and know how it all is. Or even at a smaller level, just like having this spiritual ego inflation where it's like, I'm more spiritually aware than you now. I know, you know, you're still in your uh, ignorant mode of functioning, identifying with your ego and your sense of self. I saw beyond that and now I'm, I'm better than you and I know more than you, right? And then it backfires. <laughs> mm-hmm. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And then they're, they're probably, they're definitely like more distant from it because the ego is this pesky thing. It's now it's going to latch on to spirituality as, you know, its own way of creating the separateness between you and others, essentially. So 
Mm -hmm. I read this really great quote. Yeah, briefly describe it as quite a long quote, but the gist of it was that, you know, the psychedelic experience is like being choppered to the top of a mountain and it gives you the false sense of this notion that you did all the work to get there. Mm -hmm. And that can really lead to, you know, spiritual narcissism and ego inflation. And so after enlightenment, do the laundry. And for me, meditation Mm -hmm. is that practice of, of taking the step every day to climb the mountain. So I see it as like this dual approach. Yes, psychedelics can help, you know, show you those mystical experience, the deeper meaning. And then when you're done, you know, go sit on your meditation cushion and do the work to help these changes that we want to see actually take root in our lives. Yeah, yeah, totally. It's like, it's a distinction, like in the book by the leading meditation researcher, Richard Davidson, I think he wrote this with uh, Daniel Goldman, who's like the very famous guy for emotional intelligence, who's also a meditation teacher and friend of Richard Davidson. Uh, They wrote this book called, I have to paraphrase the title, it's like meditation states and traits or states versus traits. And this is an important distinction is can you differentiate a particular transcendent or a high state versus lasting traits, things that actually create changes in your tendencies and behavior and thinking. And people often conflate the two and, and say, now that I've entered this state, these things are now a part of me and who I am, which is never the case. Because again, if you're not doing conscious work to integrate it's never going to last. And, and if you think you don't need the conscious work and then, you know, you got some definite work to do there to change your perspective too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How to transmute altered states into altered traits. Exactly. I've, I've read that. And that's part of the journey and just seeing that, you know, it's a process, all of this, this journey that we're on. So many people are on the spiritual path of improvement and it's like, you know, we never get there. There's no arriving. Mm-hmm. It's just one step at a time on the path. Yeah. Totally. I'm curious, are you familiar with any of the the neuroscience behind visualization? I call them more like visionary practices. And I've, I've read before that um, when we close our eyes and see ourselves doing something in our mind's eye, that our brain doesn't know the difference between what we're imagining and what is actually happening in reality. Do you know anything about that? Yeah, definitely. Like in terms of brain activity, you can directly activate your visual cortex, which is area related to processing visual information through conscious intention alone. So definitely in order to have that image in your mind's eye, you're actually are recreating that perception, some sense in your brain. So yeah, I think more or less in terms of your brain, the the distinction between real visual experience and our imagined is a matter of degree. It's a very similar thing in that sense. Mm -hmm. I have a theory that There's moments, these windows that open up in my own psychedelic experiences where I am very visual in my internal realm. And my theory is that if I really hold the vision of what I want to create with my life and I'm under the influence of psychedelic substances and there's uh, more neurochemistry that's happening in the brain and I'm in a, a higher degree of mental flexibility, that I'm enhancing my capacity to rewrite old beliefs and old storylines. Do you have anything to say on on this theory that I have? Yeah, yeah, no, totally. I mean, it it makes sense to me. Um, I've also, I've read a lot of like self-help type books that talk about visualization. And there's a really famous one called Psycho-Cybernetics from way back in the 60s, I think. And the main idea in that book was like, in order to create lasting change in behavior, you have to change your unconscious self-image. And the way to change the self-image is to consistently visualize what you want it to be as if it's already occurred, right? 
to like visualize what would it feel like for you to be this successful I don't know, business person and in as much sensory detail as possible in the brain because it can't differentiate necessarily between real and imagined experience will start to believe that it's true and it'll create these changes in your mental tendencies. And, and I think the psychedelic state, well, it totally makes sense to me that, you know, your, your visualization ability might be amplified and you're in this kind of open childlike state where you can internalize beliefs perhaps easier that if you approach this with conscious intention and meditative focus, uh, it could definitely be much more potent than if you weren't on a psychedelic. So, I mean, although I don't know if that's supported by research or anything, but it, it makes sense to me and it can very well uh, be the case. It makes sense to me too. <laughs> and I've also talked to some people, I, I don't know exactly what the research was. Um, I listened to one researcher at the World Ayahuasca Conference talking about some recent studies that they're doing now around ayahuasca and brainwave states. And he talked about the capacity to go into gamma brainwave states which is like this hyper connected state. Um, and I'm, I'm curious, have you seen any research around psychedelics and shifts in brainwave states? Yeah. So, uh, in a lot of the papers done at Imperial college, London, they've collected data that, that speaks to brain states. You know, often they talk about one of the particular waves that they focused on is alpha waves. And what's interesting about alpha waves is that they seem to, you know, they correspond to a relaxed state. And often when our eyes are closed, there's more alpha rhythms, you could say, very generally speaking. And other research has proposed the idea that alpha waves correspond to a greater reliance on our internal models, on our predictions on our beliefs, narratives, etc. For example, in the psychedelic state and psilocybin, I think LSD too, um, there's reduced alpha activity within um, or reduced alpha power in the area of the brain called the posterior cingulate cortex, which is an area that we could say is, has been related to self-related processing and is related to our memories of past experiences. And so we get this localized, spatially specific reductions in alpha band power that seem to relate to reductions in our sense of ego or self and also similar stuff in visual areas too so they haven't necessarily focused on gamma that i've seen but they're having studies looked at it i'm not familiar with all of them but definitely one of the main things they focused on is posterior singlet cortex reductions related to sense of self Mm -hmm. And we do know that psychedelics have this capacity to open up our subconscious realms. Um, Is it your understanding that the subconscious mind is associated to theta brainwave states? And does that have to do with um, the way that it's affecting the default mode network? Yes. Like in my mind, it makes more sense to mention it related to the alpha band activity. Because the idea with the subconscious mind emerging in in the experience, like how I understand it is that, again, going back to this idea of models being reduced in the rigidity, is that typically our models, which encode our ego narrative, as well as our idea of understanding of how the world is, these represent what's pushing away our subconscious repressed aspects of our mind which is like unprocessed memories and emotions and so on. We're kind of with our stories and narratives, explaining them away and covering them up. And so when these stories and narratives are being blown apart or reduced, um, now there's much more space for these previously explained away or ignored things from our past uh, to come up into our awareness, you know, such that we have to acknowledge and address them in some capacity. Again, alpha has been related to our models or predictions. And so perhaps a disruption of alpha-related activity can lead to 
yeah, again, these like lower level memories and emotions to to come up because now they have more space and they're not being pushed away. Mm, that was a great description. So just to wrap up this conversation where we've covered so much ground, how do you feel like the research that you're doing in terms of the neuroscience of psychedelics is changing the way that you relate to your everyday life and the way that you perceive reality? Do you feel like the narratives that you're learning from what you're studying are infiltrating your own personal perceptual view of reality? Yeah, I think so. I think I've always somehow had a psychedelic mindset, like from, I don't know, my late teens, um, in the sense that I've always tried to maintain an awareness of the limitations of my perspective and kind of be open to having this fluid sense of self where I'm not attached to a particular identity and I'm trying my best to always be growing, always be changing and not holding on to my conceptions of reality and how I think things should be, which is very much related to meditation and I guess spiritual practice, if you want to call it that. And I think seeing this stuff come up in the research about reducing our kind of how hard we cling to our models of who we are and how the world is really reinforce this too. At the end of the day, life is happening. We're experiencing these things and the actuality of experience is far beyond our mind's ability to fully comprehend it. And by living within our models and holding onto them, we're limiting our experience of life and shutting ourselves off from particular opportunities. And so it really, it really supports this view of trying to live life perhaps one moment at a time and just being open to different possibilities and uh, flexible changes and uh, the need to adapt to new situations and things with an open mind. Mm, what a wonderful note to end on. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing all your intelligence and wisdom on this podcast. I really just appreciated this conversation so much and a lot to digest and chew on. Of course, truly my pleasure. I definitely, this was a lot of fun and I'm so glad you uh, invited me to be on your show. Hi friend. Thank you so much for tuning into another episode of the Psychedelic Leadership Podcast. If you're resonating with this content and you feel inspired to subscribe or share with a friend or write a review, I would so appreciate that. And if you'd like to be in touch with me, please feel free to reach out through my website, livefreelauraD.com, or send me a message and connect with me through Instagram at livefreelauraD. And now I'm going to leave you with this song by Samuel J called Warriors of Light. Until next time. Time is unfolding, some of them chosen, peacefully they come. Like the rising of the sun, the warriors have come. The warriors have come. I would like to see this world, yeah. Live with much more hope To see the power we have Used to help the other cope I looked at the horizons I can see them gathered now All watching the rising tide I can feel them somehow If more of these people Looked into each other's eyes There would be more love Than fear in our minds and so as they stand alone, don't give up their fight I was 
your side, warriors of light. Thank you. 